everyone, I'm Riyadh Akyol and this is Dignified Resilience, a podcast on fresh narratives on confronting despair, alleviating distress, and forging ahead. In this podcast, we hear from people around the globe at all stages of life and variety of industries and learn how to channel dignified resilience to survive, feed the soul to heal, and connect with others through inspiring compassionate actions and behavior. At the same time, I aim to grow a global conversation that seeks to better acknowledge different sociocultural perspectives on meaningfully weathering life's adversities and achieving well-being. Here is a noble and humane invitation for surpassing our old selves by learning about and from other people's moving forces and limitations for successfully overcoming affliction and ache. Remember, we have different lives, distinct pathways, cultures, and contexts, but we can find common ground in supporting dignified resilience anywhere. So let's go then. Hello, and welcome to Dignified Resilience. I'm very excited for today's conversation and grateful for both work and time that Dr. Bruce Perry, my today's guest, has invested in the topic of resilience, and particularly in developing a perspective on childhood adversity and its impacts that I much appreciated and which resonated with me, um, and surely with a lot of uh, the experiences and those of many others, uh, people that I know, whether they're friends or family or colleagues. Before welcoming him, allow me to introduce Dr. Perry. Um, He is the principal of Neurosequential Network, senior fellow at the Child Trauma Academy and adjunct professor in the departments of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago, as well as the School of Allied Health at La Trobe University in um, Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. Over the last 30 years, Dr. Perry has been an active teacher, clinician, and researcher in children's mental health and neurosciences, holding a variety of academic positions. His work on the impact of abuse, neglect, and trauma on the developing brain has impacted clinical practice, programs, and policy around the world. Dr. Perry is the author with Maya Slavitz of The Boy Who Was Raised uh, as a uh, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, a best-selling book based on his work with maltreated uh, children, and Born for Love, Why Empathy is Essential and Endangered. Dr. Perry's most recent book, um, What Happened to You, Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing, was published this year, co-authored with Oprah Winfrey. It's a number one New York Times bestseller, and I keep seeing online that at the end of this year, it's picking up awards as the best book on various um, platforms. And uh, Dr. Perry has published over 500 journal articles, book chapters, and scientific uh, proceedings. He's the recipient of numerous professional awards and honors. Um, I do not want to skip the biographies. No, this is important. These things are important. Um, that is uh, there blush. No, there is so much that I want to talk to you, Dr. Perry, and I'm sure that the conversation will be so beneficial for so many listeners uh, and viewers around the world. So hello, um, thanks for being here. Welcome to Dignify Resilience. How are you today? Well, first of all, thank you, Riata, for having me. I'm very honored. Um, I'm looking forward to our conversation, and uh, I'm particularly grateful for the opportunity to talk to you and your audience, Mm -hmm. uh, because it is so international. And uh, a lot of times I end up just talking, you know, it's sort of like an echo chamber. You talk to people Mm -hmm. who think like you do, who look like you do, and come from your background. And so I, I know that you have a very uh, wide and diverse audience. So I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. 
Absolutely. So great. Let's dive in. Um, as I mean, I got in touch with you after I read your book, What Happened to You? And I learned from it that um, Oprah and you have been talking about trauma and the brain and resilience. And you've been obviously working about it on the healing as well for more than 30 years. And as you yeah. say, this book is in many ways the culmination of those talks. So tell our listeners, how is it that as you write the title, What Happened to You? makes and signifies a shift in perspective. Um, that kind of honors the power of the past to shape our current functioning. Why is that the key question if you want to understand someone? Yeah, I, it's interesting. I, You know how it is when you grow up and, and you just think the world is a certain way and you just, you really don't, you know, everybody you meet, you kind of think, well, they must think the way I do. Mm -hmm. And so... I have to say, I have to admit that this this question about uh, focusing on the importance of history, mm-hmm. either the history of a people or the history of a person as being important to how they function in the present has always been part of the way I've thought about life. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up in uh, North Dakota, which is a very rural uh, state in the U.S., and I just was part of a family that were, had been settlers in that, you know, pioneers in, in that community. And I was acutely aware of these transgenerational phenomenon. You know, my great grandfather was a sheriff and, mm-hmm. and my grandfather, you know, had another role in this small community. And there, so I just was always thinking about history and I grew I wanted to be a history teacher when I as I was growing up and uh, but I was also very interested in biology mm-hmm. so I started to recognize that development you know the process of you know becoming a a full organism whether you're thinking about you know raccoons or birds or people mm-hmm. starts you know, back as a single cell, and then you that cell divides, and then there's influences on how different systems organize. And so I, I was always tuned into that. Mm-hmm. And then when I was went to college, I was very, very fortunate to have a professor who was studying the impact of stress on the development of the brain. And he had really by accident discovered that a very, very brief experience of stress at the right time in the early life of an an animal who was studying he did this with both primates and with rats but just a five minute long experience would impact the way that animal grew up and i i was just fascinated by that so from that point forward i started thinking about you know recognizing that the present functioning of a person or the child or somebody who i was interacting with was profoundly impacted by what had happened to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's funny, I mean, I, it, this 30-year relationship I had with Oprah, mm-hmm. all of these conversations I had with her about different aspects of trauma, you know, the impact of sexual abuse, you know, how we should solve problems about community violence, you know, there were all kinds of things that were that we talked about. And it was finally, after she finished her show, Mm-hmm. and was no longer doing her show, she became a correspondent for 60 minutes mm-hmm. and did some special topics. And 
she was doing a special topic about uh, a program uh, that helped people who were traumatized in Milwaukee, which is part of where she grew up. Mm-hmm. And they happened to say, hey, we're using you know, a program that uh, in collaboration with Dr. Perry. She said, oh, I know Dr. Perry. So she mm-hmm. called me up mm-hmm. and said, do you want to be on this, you know, talk with me about this work? I'm like, I guess, all right. So we had a conversation and she was relating a story about one of these kids who had been given all kinds of opportunities Mm-hmm. But it kind of blown the opportunities, you know, mm-hmm. he was given resources, he was given additional tutoring, he was given, uh, you know, all kinds of things. And, mm-hmm. and, and, she, and she kept saying stuff like, well, what's wrong with him? Why wouldn't he take advantage of that? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, the real question shouldn't be what's wrong with him. It's like, what happened to him, mm-hmm. such that he can't take advantage of that. Yeah. And the funny thing was, that phrase immediately crystallized for her, all of these conversations we've been having. And it made me realize, first of all, what a bad teacher I had been. <laughs> you know, I spent 30 years telling her this stuff yeah. and she really didn't get it until I sort of helped her sort of shift her perspective a little bit. And then it just was like an aha moment for her. And, and uh, from that moment forward, we could have much deeper conversations about things. And um, anyway. So what happened was that her publisher saw the 60 minutes piece mm-hmm. and my conversation with her, I think was less than 90 seconds or, you know, how that is on television. Mm-hmm. They just <laughs> turn it into, you know, they'll tape you for three hours and then they'll have Cut 30 seconds. Yeah. Right. So he's, he asked her, he said, do you think he'd be willing to write a book mm-hmm. and for us? And, mm-hmm. and uh, Oprah asked me and I said, I don't know, Oprah, I already wrote a book about this. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, the reason people will listen to this, you'll reach more people mm-hmm. if you write a book about it. Mm. And she said, I don't know anything about this. I said, well, yes, you do. We've been talking about it for years. Mm-hmm. And, and at one point, we finally just said, well, why don't we just re- have, why don't we both write the book? Yeah. And, and that's how it happened. So thank you for sharing that creative part of this collaboration. I think that, um, as you said, that switch from what's wrong with you to what happened to you might seem very easy for those who have been dealing with it like you, but for us as readers and the outsiders or let alone those who have experienced it, it's such a relief that it's been put out there now so that we could really shift conversations and uh, change the way that we talk with people and ourselves. And I will get back to uh, this um, in our conversation, but I think that it's important to also clarify as you do in the book, even as little as 20 years ago, trauma was never really considered a factor in a person's health as we learned, which was also wow for me because now, or maybe because I use it a lot, um, it seems that it's been out there for, for a while. And it's obvious it leads to those of us who work or study or encounter people who've experienced trauma, let alone themselves, how it's so underappreciated um, in mental and physical health and in the workplace, in politics more broadly. And you yourself write that the complexities of trauma impact all of our systems. But can you please tell our listeners what you mean when you uh, use the word trauma? Because yeah. we hear it a lot, yeah. but many people still don't have a clear understanding of its true definition, if that even exists. Right. No, Riyadh, you're, you're touching on something that's so important for our field, 
and that is that the everybody does use the term right mm -hmm. i mean i i you hear people in the grocery store talking about mm -hmm. you know and and so it's important to be clear about what we mean when we're talking about it mm -hmm. so the easiest way to kind of explain it is to remind people that your body has all these systems that help you manage uh stress you know any challenge you know when you get hungry your body responds a certain way. If you run up a bunch of stairs and you get short of breath, your body responds a certain way. Mm -hmm. And and there are systems in your body that help you do that. Mm -hmm. And so running up a bunch of stairs it, when you're out of shape like me is a, is a stressor. All of us, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'd probably have to run up more stairs than me to get stressed. So, <laughs> But anyway, so it, but what happens is these systems are continually working mm -hmm. to help us make our way through the day and mm -hmm. thrive and survive. And, and there are certain patterns of challenge of activation of the stress response mm -hmm. that lead to more chronic changes in how well these systems work. Mm -hmm. So the, the, in the important, this, I'm, I'm kind of giving you this long explanation because mm -hmm. this is also a, a good way to understand resilience. Mm -hmm. Because it's interesting, trauma and resilience are kind of, uh, you know, one side, two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Both of them involve the systems in our body that are involved with stress. Mm -hmm. One pattern of activation of the stress response leads to stronger systems mm -hmm. and what we call resilience. Another pattern leads to weaker and more vulnerable systems, which lead to trauma-related risk for physical mental social health problems mm -hmm. and and the challenge to all of us is to see in the way we parent in the way we are with our partners in the way we are with the way we do our work and everything else can we create systems and environments where there are more resilience building stressors mm -hmm. than stressors that wear people down and wear people out and make them sick mm -hmm. but basically a trauma Mm -hmm. is any pattern of activation of the stress response system that leads to a change that makes that system uh, more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, and as you're thinking about that, there are three, we, we use the term, the three E's mm -hmm. that the, there's the event. Mm -hmm. So let's say that the event is, um, I'm going to give you two examples. One event okay. is a clear thing where everybody go, wow, that's pretty bad. Let's say mm -hmm. school shooting, right? Okay. So if you're in a school shooting, um, most people can go, wow, that seems like that would be a traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. But not every child in that experience, in that event, has the same internal experience. Mm -hmm. Some children were closer to the violence. Some people were mm -hmm. further away from the violence. So the way the body responds to that is going to mm -hmm. be important so that there's two of the E's. One's the event, okay. then the experience, okay. and then there's the effects. So mm -hmm. the people who are most impacted by that, you know, have this high prolonged activation of their stress response mm -hmm. because of the event, they will end up having being more sensitive they'll have a harder time with transitions mm -hmm. they'll be more inattentive they'll be they're they'll start to wear down their heart and their lungs and so they're the ones that become 
more vulnerable to mm-hmm. problems. Now that's that's kind of an easy way to think mm-hmm. about it. Now here's the one that's more subtle. Okay. <clears throat> Let's say that you are a child who has autism. Mm-hmm. And the event is going to a birthday party. Okay. For that child, that event does you know, most people go a birthday party, party. should be fun. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. But because of the way he's organized, Mm-hmm. his brain can't handle mm-hmm. all of the sensory input and all of the noise and complexity. So it activates his stress response in extreme ways. And his internal experience of the happy birthday party mm-hmm. is negative. He feels overwhelmed. And then that child will start to do self-regulatory things like rock and self-stimulate mm-hmm. and might even sort of be behaviorally explosive and and because that system has been activated in that way that will be contributing excuse me to the long-term effects that for that child that the next time he has an opportunity to do something social he'll go oh no 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 Mm -hmm. no and so for the child with autism a birthday party can have a traumatic effect which sort of seems bizarre but that's what can happen And that makes everything so much more, I mean, the nuances that you describe show how almost difficult it is to, and how careful we need to be when we talk about this and when we deal with individuals, precisely because almost every single individual experiences a bad event event in a different way, right? Um, Exactly, exactly. It's so complicated to think about it because we, we want to make a formula, but now we see... Yeah. It, it, it cannot be a formula. Uh, well, right. It, it, well, it, 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 that's such a good point. And that's why our work mm-hmm. continually focuses on getting to know the individual person. Yeah. yeah. So let's, let's say that you are, I mean, I noticed that you have an accent, right? Mm-hmm. So there have been times, I'm sure, where you've been in an environment where the moment you talk, Mm-hmm. There are people that will look at you like you don't belong here, mm. or you get these nonverbal signals that, mm-hmm. like, uh, not necessarily of a, yeah. of rejection, but sort of like questioning. Yeah. And so, when that happens to you all day long, it mm-hmm. wears out your stress response system. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. this is one of the challenges of being uh, of of understanding these issues, right? Yeah. So, as you say, it is. There's no simple formula. Mm-hmm. And the key, I think, is kind of what you, you know, you said earlier, we have to be, we have to be careful. Mm-hmm. And we have to be respectful yeah. as we meet new people because we don't know their yeah. story, right? Exactly. You just mm-hmm. never know what somebody might have, you know, what, what their story is. What happened to them, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, I'm a mother of three kids and the youngest one is seven months old, a baby. And um, it was important timing. <laughs> yeah, they grow up too fast. Know, <laughs> but I'm do. grateful that I can get some sleep at night now. Um, <laughs> so uh, what was incredible, well, one of the many things that I appreciated is, and you mentioned it briefly, to understand how this, the timing, I mean, the experiences in the first years of life are so disproportionately powerful in shaping how our brain organizes. And if you can, yeah. I would appreciate yeah. if you could talk a little bit about it, because um, and, and I'm referring also to those findings that the timing of adversity also makes a huge uh, yeah. difference. 
Um, and at the be- when I just read it, then I got so depressed. I was like, oh my God, so many people are messed no, up. No, but no. then it gets better at the end, towards the end of the book. But it does I get better. It gets better. So, but uh, it is important <laughs> to understand how the younger you are, the more you depend upon the, the caregivers. Um, can you right. tell us a little bit more about this timing and how when we're babies almost, it's uh, crucial? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I, again, I just want to, and just, I'm going to remind you okay. <laughs> that as, as overwhelming as it may feel as a young parent, yeah. that, oh my gosh, I have this responsibility in every little uh-huh. thing I do. Just remember that this is also this tremendous gift, right? Mm-hmm. So your infant, your kids have absorbed all the good things about you. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they absorb like a little sponge, uh, your mm-hmm. kindness and your tenderness and your intentional efforts to, you know, and we get it wrong, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, and the, the beautiful thing about a healthy development, mm-hmm. and, and now this is going back to the, what I said earlier about the pattern of stress. Okay. When you have a caregiver mm-hmm. who is interacting with you and you get hungry, thirsty, cold, or whatever it is, you're activating your stress response. Mm-hmm. And they'll come and they'll regulate you and feed you and then your stress response goes down. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. when they want, your little one wants your attention, they, they kind of get fussy or a little bit upset and then you give them attention and they go, oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And then you have to pay attention to one of your other kids and they're like, hey, what about me? What about me? Mm-hmm. And so the very nature of healthy human interactions that build resilience mm-hmm. is that they involve rupture and mm-hmm. repair, mm-hmm. rupture and repair. And so a lot of parents are hard on themselves because they think that they should always be so there. Mm -hmm. And you just need to recognize that it's these little doses of, of dysregulation. They're not terrible for kids. Mm -hmm. They're, they're part of build. It's like weightlifting, right. Mm -hmm. Or doing interval training. If you want your kid to be your child to grow up or you to be a better runner Mm -hmm. you have to sort of run hard and make yourself distressed and breathe hard and sweat and then you rest Mm -hmm. and then you do it again and then you rest and then you do it again and rest and it's the same thing with all of these developmental things so i I hope that the people who are listening don't beat themselves up Mm -hmm. because they weren't perfect Mm -hmm. the brain and healthy development does not want perfect the brain wants little imperfections. Mm-hmm. It wants little challenges. That's how we grow. That's how we get better. Anyway, so <clears throat> back yeah. to that point. Mm-hmm. So these systems I talked about earlier that are involved in stress, mm-hmm. there are many of them. Some of the most important uh, components are in lower parts of the brain, mm-hmm. and they develop early in life. They, they begin to develop in while you're a fetus in utero. And then after birth, um, the, in, the baby gets challenged, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, I've never seen things. I've never heard things. I've never been this cold. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these things are stressors. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, there's this caregiving environment, mom, dad, auntie, you know, everybody who can come in and provide uh, a touch and feeding and warmth and all the stuff that helps us grow up. And it is that pattern of activation, regulation, Mm -hmm. activation, regulation, activation, regulation, that builds 
these systems mm -hmm. to start sending normal organizing input to undeveloped parts of the higher brain. Mm -hmm. So the brain, if you, th you know, in the book, there's this drawing, right? This yeah. upside down triangle drawing. And so if the listeners can envision an upside down triangle and at the mm -hmm. bottom of it are these regulatory networks and they're sending little uh, sort of roadways, little pathways up into higher parts of the brain that are undeveloped. And the signals that those lower systems are sending are really important in organizing these higher networks in the brain. Mm -hmm. So here's the dilemma <clears throat> and the gift. Mm -hmm. If in the first couple of months, as exhausting as it is, as mm -hmm. hard as it is, you're attentive and attuned. And then when the baby cries, you come and feed the baby and you hold her and you rock her and they drive you crazy and they take a bunch of energy. Mm -hmm. But what you're doing is you're building a resilient stress response capability. Amazing. And so the more you do that, the, the easier it is for them to tolerate a little bit of absence when you're when they're three months old. And then a little bit longer when they're five months old. And when they're seven months old, they cry, but they know you're going to come. They know you're coming. You know, they know, all right. Ah, ah. They actually see how much crying before you come. But they're healthy. Mm. Now, the downside is if you've got an overwhelmed caregiver and you've got, uh, or a child yeah. who, God forbid, is neglected or abused, those systems that are mm -hmm. organizing in the first couple of months of life start to send abnormal signals. Mm -hmm. And even if at three months of life, they get into an environment where people are safe and protective and caring for them, they still have this major organizing system that's continuing to send abnormal signals to the develop their developing mm -hmm. brain. And mm -hmm. so they they're continue to be at risk, even though they're no longer in an environment that's negative. And as you've been now talking and while I was reading the book, it made me also think how important and how almost it's a lot, how almost is, it is a luxury for adults and caregivers to know themselves in terms of the parent with a childhood trauma and the consequences that that might lead towards, you know, just caregiving as well. Or I was thinking about children born out of sexual violence. Uh, there's a yeah. lot of it in, in yeah. Bosnia where I'm from. I was thinking about the fact, the circumstances that end up, um, you know, putting both parents and these kids in um, environments that maybe these caregivers, not, it's not that they didn't choose, but that they wish were different as well. And exactly. how important yeah. it is that we are aware of how you said almost fascinatingly that it changes the brain of these infants, that it impacts yeah. the brain. That is incredible. And why I think we need to keep talking about this in, in right. the impact of trauma on, on adults and humans in general. But if I uh, tell me, so if I'm getting correct and to also clarify, we have been talking about the stress responses and is it then that when the stress response systems are activated in unpredictable or extreme ways that that's what kind of becomes overwhelming. Uh, yep, that's exactly right. That's but that exactly when it's right. predictable and I'm not going to say normal, but what, what should be the word moderate, then that's what moderate. is okay. Right. 
exactly. That's okay. And so, for example, as your is your how, how old are your other children? Six and four. Okay, so your six and four year old are probably having experiences where they're challenged every day, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they you know there might be a new routine in school, or they may go on a field trip somewhere where there's a bunch of new things, and so that's a little bit of a stressor, mm -hmm. but because they're with people that they know and there's some, you know, there's relational safety, they have this challenge and then it, it's over and on the bus back home or the car back home, then they feel regulated, but they've had this challenge. Yeah. It's, it's predictable because they've been told we're going to go to the museum or we're going to go to wherever. And, and there's an element of excitement and it's interesting when you are in an environment where you feel where you see people who are your safety anchors, mm -hmm. activation of your stress response is interpreted as excitement. Okay. If you are if you are in the same environment but you don't have any of those anchors, mm -hmm. you interpret that same activation as fear. Mm -hmm. And so this is one of the things about, <clears throat> you know, a healthy developmental environment, right? Mm -hmm. It's good to challenge our kids. There's nothing wrong with sport, drama, music, band. You know, when, when kids learn to, to do a, their recital, you mm -hmm. know, it's stressful mm -hmm. to perform in front of other people. But really, once they do it, that's a level of sort of uh, uh, that gives you confidence. I've had success with this challenge. And you learn to tolerate a little bit of internal discomfort, mm -hmm. which means the next time you have a new a new thing, you're not as overwhelmed and you'll feel a little bit more comfortable and you realize, you know what, I can do a new thing mm -hmm. and not get totally overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And, and this leads th this coupled with curiosity, the ability to tolerate a little bit of discomfort really leads to this wonderful, healthy developmental trajectory. Mm -hmm. I keep, oh, as I parent every day, I mean, about my own childhood um, and those of my friends. And I am on one hand so grateful that um, I am in a place where they have physical safety, first of all, um, right. and, and, and everything that can come after that. But how many people, and I just, and kids grow up not having that as the first basis of being able to build this resilience the way that you do and and in the book there are beautiful easy to understand graphs and 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 it was beneficial for me to see it in the way and how you describe how someone with a sensitized stress response will respond to even moderate stress with a terror response um as right. well and how mm -hmm. that shifts as well and how how that contributes to overall health um and i don't know yeah. did you ever think about it but I obviously I thought about this when I read that when you write that if if you grow up in a household or in a community which has that unpredictability and chaos, and that yeah. right that you will have this change response system, um, I was thinking about can one think about can we say that for a country even I mean like how we define a community is yeah. like <clears throat> micro to macro. Um, but I was thinking about this pattern of stress activation. I was thinking, I mean, I'm writing, uh, yesterday I was talking 
in a program about whether Bosnia will split up again. We're talking about a country mm. that's been through a genocide 26 years ago, and we are discussing whether part of it will secede or not. And I said yesterday, well, let's also, besides talking about policy, remind people that these are survivors whose trauma has not even properly been acknowledged. They haven't even had proper uh, reckon. The perpetrators have not reckoned with it properly. And then you have, from the most micro household to the neighborhood, to community, to a country, and I'm thinking, how we're not talking enough about the consequences and impacts of this exactly on functioning as individual citizens contributors to i don't know this sounds horrible but even like to a company to uh, economy to a country um yeah. can, i mean so first yeah. of all riata you are absolutely spot on mm. with understanding that human history, mm-hmm. you know, the the creation and dissolution of nations, mm-hmm. the process of creating trade and treaties, mm-hmm. all, all of human history mm-hmm. has been impacted by these phenomena. Mm-hmm. And, and if you don't understand these phenomena, there will be all kinds of repetitions mm-hmm. in the way we try to solve problems. Mm-hmm. The, I'm actually working on a book right now about that very thing, about how do you take these concepts and apply them to organizations, to groups, all the way up to nations? Yep. Because you're absolutely right. There are certain nations mm-hmm. that have a critical mass of traumatized peoples. Yep. And if the from these people mm-hmm. come the, the artists, the poets, the sculptors, the leaders. Yeah. And and what you find is that in in all of those domains of functioning, there is some echo of the trauma. Yep. And, you know, many years ago, I was lucky enough to have an experience where I was, I was at the University of Chicago, mm-hmm. and there was a <clears throat> historian named Richard Helley, who was a, an authority on Russian history. And one of the things that he had been studying Mm -hmm. is what's referred to as the Russian Dark Ages. Mm -hmm. And what it was, was about a 200-year period when there was incredible uh, repressive and oppressive violence. And during that time, there were almost no poems written, no books written, Mm -hmm. no productivity, no creativity, but incredible violence. Mm -hmm. And when he read a, an article that I wrote about, and it, we, we talk about this in the book, that what we call state-dependent functioning, mm-hmm. that when you are in a state of fear, yep. big parts of your cortex are just not easily accessed. Mm-hmm. And since the cortex is the most uniquely human part of us, mm-hmm. you're more likely to engage in inhumane mm-hmm. worldviews. Mm-hmm. It's easier for you to... to uh, uh, demonize other people. It's easier for you to do things that are mm-hmm. brutal, that are not very rational, mm-hmm. that are sort of driven by fear and emotion. And we see this happen. This has happened in history again and again and again and again. So I think, Riyadh, you're absolutely spot mm-hmm. on that if our leaders and the people involved in foreign policy, involved in sort of creating internal national policy in every country, knew some of these things, 
I think that we would create better practices, policies, and law. I think we'd be better. And I think it's possible. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm hopeful that, our, that by the time I'm dust, that these concepts will be more widespread in the population. And it may take a couple of generations before it percolates up and becomes common knowledge like things, other, other areas of science. Mm -hmm. But I think once this becomes common knowledge, mm -hmm. there will be more hum the creation of more humane policy practice law and so forth. I really do think that that can happen. I think it can happen as well. And that's why I think these conversations are critical. And, and um, another thing that came to my mind now that you were speaking uh, about that example from Russia, I do also know, and I don't know, I think how interested it might be to study um, different places in terms of longevity of, um, let's say, an armed conflict, because I know from Bosnia, I know from Syria, from a lot of friends or colleagues, from even Afghanistan, how also getting to those parts of the brain that produce, let's say, art or creativity have also been so critical to their survival after a point. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Because you do have to think about survival and that physical thing and, and the food or if you have it any. But then after a point, the most beautiful pieces of art or poetry um, have been created in the most unimaginable circumstances, uh, which yeah. then tells us something else about our necessities as humans. But I wonder yeah. how, whether in some point uh, this kind of goes or it becomes complementary to, to, to no, try they, to they do both. They go hand in hand. Okay. Right? Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, and we talked about that post-traumatic wisdom part mm. and I don't want to get too sciencey here, but mm. one of the things I did talk about in there a little bit is that yeah. the adaptive, everybody's probably heard of the, the response to stress that, mm -hmm. or threat that we call the fight or flight response, mm -hmm. right? That, that's when you sort of increase your heart rate and you prepare your body to, to, to deal with whatever the threat is. And when that happens, that shuts down certain parts of your cortex. Mm -hmm. Really the thinking part of your brain kind of mm -hmm. is gone. But when you are in an inescapable, unavoidably painful situation, you, you can't run and you're not going to win the fight. Mm -hmm your brain allows you to dissociate, which is like mm. disconnect and kind of mm. robotically go through the motions and do things that are compliant, mm -hmm. do things that will keep you alive. Mm. But it's also allows you to have access to the part of your brain that can create things. Mm. So when people are doing art or writing, you're dissociating. Fantasy is dissociation. So some of the most beautiful art some of the most creative art and, and most creative thinking has yeah. come from people who are able to dissociate. Mm -hmm. And often their ability to dissociate is related to their previous history of exposure to trauma. And so, you know, I don't think you can look at, you know, the, some of the great works of art, some of the great writers, some of the most creative people they all have ha had things happen mm. that have been heartbreaking. There's been loss. There's been, you know, they've been immersed in, you know, 
uh, warfare. Many of them have been displaced peoples. You know, it's. Uh, I think exactly what you're saying is is important, yeah. and it's you know it's it's also what that for me the part about that is that it's such a hopeful element of the human condition is that. Mm-hmm out of the midst of all of this terrible stuff that we can do to each other, mm-hmm. there are these slivers of beauty and art and the most humane parts of us emerge no matter what. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. I'm so glad that, that, that I'll be able to read about this in your book when it comes out so that we could keep talking about it. So then if trauma at any age could cause these symptoms that we call PTSD, uh, which you mentioned. Uh, I was surprised to hear or to read that the majority of the long-term effects do not manifest as PTSD. Right. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Because that's also, yeah. it's important to, to talk about it. Um, because, yeah, it, tell us more. So back to the first part of our conversation. We have all these systems in our in our body, mm-hmm. I- including our brain, mm-hmm. that help us respond to stressors. Mm-hmm. And these, the, the, we don't just have one stress response system. We have a lot. Mm-hmm. So, in one individual, it may be that they have the genetic vulnerability that they have a history of, you know, cardiac disease, for example. Mm-hmm. And so if they get stressed and they have these developmental stressors, they're going to probably exhibit cardiovascular risk, whereas the mental health systems, you know, the systems involved in traditional mental health may not be as easily overwhelmed in them. Mm -hmm. So the way you manifest these, your body's uh, adaptations and the way you manifest the effects of these traumatic experiences Mm -hmm. will be influenced by your genetics, Mm -hmm. by the presence of other people or other buffering factors. Mm -hmm. It can be tremendously influenced by your belief system. And then the other thing that's very interesting is that it's very culturally um, specific. So Mm -hmm. in the United States, we pathologize everything. You know, it's like, oh, you know, you're, it's pathological. But in other cultures, they're like, you know, they know that, of course, if somebody has a parent killed in front of them, that mm. they're going to feel bad. Mm. That doesn't mean that they're mentally ill. Yeah. Um, that means that they feel bad. So let's do what we mm. can to make them feel better. And uh, it, it's interesting. In the United States, there's a, there was an event in World War II mm-hmm. where, after the Japanese took, uh, in the Philippines, there was a mm-hmm. baton and corregidor with these little islands. And, and there were a lot of American captives mm-hmm. that were captured and then had this very tortuous long hike to a prison camp. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a hike. It was a mar. It was like, I think it was 80 miles or something. But they had no food, no water. Mm-hmm. And they call it the baton death march. Mm-hmm. And then there were survivors after four years of being in a prison camp. Now, you would think, because they had horrible traumatic experiences, if you look at how many of them came back and had symptoms, they all had symptoms. They all had sleep problems. They all had uh, what we would label as mental health problems. Many of them met criterion for PTSD, but none of them 
really not none of them, but almost none of them sought mental health help because they went back to their communities and their communities embraced them. Mm -hmm. And they knew that once in a while they might drink a little bit too much. Once in a while, they'd be a little bit isolated. Once in a while, they'd be moody. And so the community was aware of the mental health manifestations of this horrible experience. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that helped them tolerate some of this stuff. So I do think that, you know, if you look at the, the developmental effects of trauma, mm -hmm. some of them will manifest as classic post-traumatic stress disorder, but a lot of them will manifest in other ways. Maybe learning challenges, relationship challenges, mm -hmm. difficulties with just sort of regulating impulsivity mm -hmm. that's not necessarily clinically uh, clinical level. And, um, and then a lot of the manifestations are around physical health. Mm -hmm. So, but I'm rambling. So, anyway. no, no, no. I think this is really important because I think there is a, there is like a spectrum of extremes that I have noticed in the sense that either PTSD is overused as a default of what must happen, or in some cases, it is not even acknowledged as a right. possibility because it is so wrongly, in my opinion, taken as, well, nothing happened or, or he'll be okay. Right. I think right. those extremes are uh, what is worrisome uh, or what could be worrisome because of both missed opportunities to help somebody and yeah. um, right um, I mean that's that's at least what I noticed but you no, you're, out of, you're exactly right I mean yeah. I, I that that's what we and again this is interesting because we read a little bit about it in this book and I read mm -hmm. a lot about it in another book but okay if you use the DSM lens right if you use that pathology lens mm -hmm. <clears throat> then you're going to find that like 18% of the people meet criterion for PTSD. But mm -hmm. there's all kinds of other people that have problems mm -hmm. that aren't that labeled. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're adhering to that perspective, you're going to say, oh, you know, these disastrous things only impact 20% of the population. But mm -hmm. that's just not true. If you sort mm -hmm. of add in all of the potential negative impacts, Mm -hmm. anybody who goes through these, these experiences is going to have some risk. Now that doesn't mean it's bad or pathology, but it's, it's increases their risk. Mm -hmm. And then, and then coupled with that, just like you say, there are going to be all kinds of people that will minimize it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that, I think that the reason we've sort of abandoned the DSM mm -hmm. is that we don't, we think that it's like looking at this problem with blinders on. That, that it doesn't allow you to see the full scope of impact exactly. like we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and of course, if we speak about trauma and PTSD, again, uh, the part in the book that I found really important was talking about historical trauma. Um, and, yeah. and you and Oprah very powerfully speak about African-Americans uh, in your book, and you tell us how we absorb things from previous generation and how we pass them to next generation. And you did mention now both genes and family and community. And um, that said, I, I mean, I'm Bosniak, you know, and, and, and I did mention Bosnian genocide and the 
waves of violence and extermination attempts that my people have gone through history. So, um, and again, I do also want to acknowledge people and colleagues from the Middle East, from Syria, uh, that, that I know or whom I engage with who continue advocating, those for advocate for plight of Uyghurs are now in China. I'm talking about historical traumas that we, that a lot of people have inherited, a lot of ones that are being created at the moment. Yeah. And I yeah. wish if you could explain uh, to our audience a little bit about epigenetic factors uh, in addition sure. to those heritable genetic, uh, genetics related yeah. to stress regulation. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the really unique qualities of uh, our species is our brain. Mm -hmm. You know, I, and the human brain has the ability to really be more adaptable than any other organ probably than any other species. I mean, it just is so remarkably adaptive so that human beings um, have multiple mechanisms to adapt to whatever environment that they are born into. Mm -hmm. And one of the most powerful components of this adaptability, and, and this is, occurs in other mammalian and other species, but uh, and, and it's but it's, I'm trying to think of the easiest way to explain this. Mm -hmm. If you look at your, if I could look at every cell in your body, Riata, mm -hmm. the same DNA would be in every cell. Mm -hmm. So if I looked at a heart cell, the same DNA would be in your heart cell as in a brain cell. But what your brain cell looks like and what it's doing is very different than what your heart cell is doing. And so all these different parts of you have the same DNA in each cell, but different parts of the DNA are turned on and different parts are turned off. Mm -hmm. And that's controlled by what we call epigenetic factors. Epi means on top of. So mm -hmm. your chromosomes are basically coils of DNA that have... A, proteins and other chemical things on them, mm -hmm. which are signals that say, all right, turn this gene on, you're going to be a muscle cell. So you got to make a lot of this, you got to make a lot of actin and myosin, and you don't need to make any of this norepinephrine stuff. Mm -hmm. And, and then in the brain, you got other signals that say you got to make a lot of epinephrine. Mm -hmm. And you don't need to make any actin and my well, maybe a little bit, but for microtubules, for those of you who care, but Anyway, you just get different signals. Now, the way these, these epigenetic factors get their signals mm -hmm. to turn on or off comes from external input from hormones and from patterns of neurotransmitter activation. And these factors, in turn, are influenced by the experience of the person. Mm -hmm. So if the person has a lot of stress and distress, that, set, that sends a certain pattern of, of hormonal and neurotransmitter activation, mm -hmm. which changes how the epigenetic factors turn on or turn off certain things, all in service of keeping you alive under the stressful situations. Now, it just so happens that all that, that process that's going on in your brain and in your heart and in your body <clears throat> is also going on in the cells that are, you know, that you'll, your gametes, your, your, your sperm cells and your egg cells. 
So if your great grandparent had a lot of stress mm -hmm. because there was active genocide and they tried to stay alive and there was chaos and threat, his body would have made adaptations to help him stay alive. And then wow. once he had your grandparent, the, your grandparent would have inherited that set of signals about what to turn on and what to turn off. And if there was any, not now your grandfather may not have had the same pattern of experience, but he didn't need as much. Mm -hmm. So just a tiny little bit of stressor for him would reinforce that. And that could go from generation to generation to generation. Now, the good news is that we can, we can reverse that, right? Mm -hmm. So if, you know, you mm -hmm. are going to have a little bit more predictability, maybe mm -hmm. a little bit more consistency. And so the environment you provide for your kids, yeah. even though they may have the epigenetic makeup to be really highly adaptable for a chaotic environment, pretty soon their brain's going to, and, and the signals they get from the world are going to say, you know, you don't need to be all tuned up. Right. You know, you, you, you can take it down a, a notch. Mm -hmm. And so they and then their kids will be able to take it down another notch. And so we in the same way that there can be this transgenerational ramping up of these systems, there can be a transgenerational ramping down of these systems. That's so amazing. Um, and so good to know in the sense that, OK, so genes do not a change so we know that but and and we know what can be transmitted but what you said often what i think both in terms of okay i think about the current environment where i am i'm in the united states um i have obviously a lot of my family in bosnia uh, right now and they're all quote-unquote living normal lives except there's always political tension and they all carry all this baggage that 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 they didn't choose and that they don't want to transfer to their kids but right. it, it leads me back to, again, that conversation about environments. And as you say, how it can change and how much we have to work on creating environments of safety so that we can allow these kids and future generations to not carry as much burden yeah. because it takes so much time to, exactly. to create this so balance here, for them. Here's the good news, Riata. Okay. The good news, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm that it's almost impossible for the entire life of a person to create safety, predictability, because, sure. you know, just yeah. the li life is full of junk. Yeah. But here's the good news. Okay. Remember what we said about the first couple of months of life? Okay. If during that time, mm -hmm. even if there's all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. going on, make sure we take care of the young parents. Let's make them feel safe and regulated so they can create the mm -hmm. safe regulated environment for their children. That's the most critical time for some of these changes to re to, to, to take place. So mm -hmm. if you provide consistent, predictable, nurturing environments for young families who have young mm -hmm. kids and do that for six months, mm -hmm. if we if we create policy practice that protects young families, mm -hmm that is going to be able to overcome more rapidly all of our transgenerational crap mm -hmm. and it will help these kids buffer the crap world that we're going to send them out into mm -hmm. that we can protect and we do our very best for a little while but you know the reality is things will break through you know mm -hmm. and there's going to be crappy public schools and there's going to be bullies and it's going to happen but if they're incubated mm -hmm. in in love mm -hmm. and consistency and predictability they'll build the neural 
the, the neurobiological capacity to demonstrate resilience for a long period of time. And that's, for me, that's why I think policy yeah. around early childhood is really the key to, to solving a lot of these problems. Mm -hmm. Now we can, now I wanted, it's important to care for people that are teens and older folks that have trauma mm -hmm. and, and help take care of them, of course. But the secret sauce for humanity is early childhood. And I think if we, if we focus on that, we're gonna make a lot of progress. And what comes to my mind when I hear this is also how uh, both your information that you're giving us right now is important to know generally, but then how also it will impact the conversations locally in terms of each country having to maybe provide a, a different thing. For example, in the United States, we're like talking about parental leave almost, you know, first that exactly. in other countries, yeah. it will be, well, physical security, how do we stop war and why this is important, etc. So uh, just the, 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 the different policies that um, different policymakers would have to make if they keep on having the well being of citizens in mind while having this information um, is, is, you know, is um, what seems that will be going to make these conversations move forward. But now that we know about the impact of stress and trauma on the brain, and you have told us a little bit about healing from trauma, um, tell us about uh, that regulate, relate, and reason um, thing that, yep. that really, um, when I talk to my four-year-old, now I know what <laughs> I need to do and what I don't need to do in a particular moment, and it works. It yeah. really works. Uh, I, I yeah. am now much more aware of uh, why I have to just let him regulate himself a little bit before I uh, get a chance to give him a moral of the story. <laughs> and, then, exactly. and even with my relationship with my husband, you know, like myself too. So tell our listeners sure. about that um, regulate, uh, relate and reason pattern. So again, if you envision the upside down triangle brain, mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I think we all learned this in elementary school, but it, we, it doesn't really stick. Okay. But I think we all know that vision comes into the brain separately from hearing, right? So your ears go into one part of the brain and when somebody touches you, it goes into a different part of the brain. But the key is that all of that sensory input from the outside world, so like when you and I are talking, mm -hmm. um, the first part of my brain that gets to process this interaction is the lowest dumbest part of my brain mm -hmm. the, the the reactive part of my brain mm -hmm. and then once my reactive part of my brain kind of reads the signals that oh she's smiling and she's giving me good nonverbal signals that she understands then it goes up to the emotional part of my brain where the emotional part of my brain goes oh it feels good to be connected to somebody who's like-minded and we're having this fun conversation and then it gets up to the smart part of my brain where i really process the words that you're saying mm -hmm. and so there's this sequential processing mm -hmm. of experience it happens with everything. Mm -hmm. So when your child's having a meltdown, or your employee is frustrated about something, you might know the answer, right? You might know, you know, the, the right words, that they're that, wrong. <laughs> yeah, that, that you're wrong. But they're not even going to hear what you say, until they're regulated. And so we always talk about regulate, relate, and then reason. And we tend to we tend to get that out of sequence, right? You know, so we start talking to people that are dysregulated, like, you know, calm down, this is what you should do, blah, 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 blah. And they don't even hear it. They just get mad that we aren't, we aren't 
joining with them in their anger or in whatever they're complaining about. And so what, what, as you've learned to do, you learn to kind of just, instead of step forward and wag your finger, mm -hmm. you step back and you, you stay calm because of the mm -hmm. contagion of human beings. And so the more you can bring regulatory activities into your interactions with people, the more likely you are to connect with them in ways that will allow them to hear what you're saying. And honestly, you know, I, let me just reference back to Oprah. Mm -hmm. The reason Oprah didn't hear what I was saying and process it accurately all those years was that she was doing three shows a day. Mm -hmm. And every time I talked with her, she was like, like there were thousands of people that were clamoring to talk mm -hmm. with her. I mean, her to-do list was like, call Paul McCartney, call Michael Jackson. You know, it's like, what? It's like crazy. Why is she going to listen to Bruce Perry? So, so she wasn't in a state mm -hmm. to actually process and hear. And so as she later on in her career, when she had more time and she was more reflective mm -hmm. and we had this opportunity to have, we were sitting over lunch talking about this. It was a much more regulated relational mm -hmm. interaction. And then boom, the, the words got into her head and she connected all these dots. And I think that that's, as you said, it's a, it's a key lesson for all of our interactions with, with kids, peers, partners, and, um, Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm and, and another thing, though, with as we emphasize now, and as you do in the book, how it takes time to also not just recognize these patterns, but also to create these new neural networks with with this new set of associations. One thing that I thought was so important is where you talk about therapy, but where you say that therapy is more about building new associations and making new pathways and and specifically yeah. the fact that therapists can be an important part of healing but it isn't required so you know i'm saying this because again i've noticed uh throughout years um almost extremes in where somebody keeps telling to or advises to people to crowds to this you know like you need to get a therapy as if therapy yeah. is going to solve everything um yeah. and, and and we learned we learned from your book and, and how that's not necessarily the only thing that will solve everything. And of course, the other extreme spectrum where, you know, um, you don't need a therapy or you don't understand that how that is a factor of health. So can you tell us about the notion in, of connectedness? That's what I'm also trying yeah. to get into here. How important yeah. that is. You know, human beings have experienced trauma for the entire time we've been on the planet, right? And um, and every culture evolved some form of healer or shaman or mystic or, or the, the the holder of knowledge about health and wellness. And in the key to so much of the way human beings heal from trauma is the degree to which you are connected to other people in in healthy reciprocal mm. relationships mm. and the, the thing that's that's positive about connectedness is that mm. if you have people in your life mm. who are able to be present who can listen 
who can give you nonverbal signals that you belong, even if they don't say anything, even if they don't know anything about mental health issues, their presence influences the physiology of your body. It quiets your stress response when it's overactive. It, it activates the reward systems in your brain in healthy ways. That decreases the probability that you'll seek unhealthy reward like drinking or smoking or overeating or trying to find some something to fill your reward void. So the more you're connected to people and the more, the more, and again, culture is a huge part of this. The more there's a sense that I belong and I'm with my people, I'm with my group, the, the more you're going to be able to have opportunities uh, for regulation and reward and then ultimately healing. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the major problems in our modern world is that we're so fragmented. Mm -hmm. Many people experience relational poverty. Yeah. They're not connected to other people in, in meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. And then therapy, our therapeutic efforts are dosed in ways that are not biologically sensible. So think about that. The, you know, just I'll give this example here that the easiest part of the brain to change is the cortex, the top part of the brain. It's part of the brain that is responsible for language, for example. Okay. So if you wanted to change that part of the brain, <clears throat> okay. And let's say I wanted to learn Bosnian. Is that okay. that's yeah? Is that, and mm -hmm. That's the language. Do you think if I went and spent an hour a week with you, mm -hmm. that I would learn to speak Bosnian very quickly? Depends how quickly is very quickly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I it, wouldn't. It'd yeah. take a long time, yeah. right? I mean, exactly. I might learn a few phrases and a few words, yeah. but. But if I were immersed in a community where everybody was speaking Bosnian, yep. I would learn it much more quickly. It would be more useful and I would, the brain would change faster. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm saying is that, that yeah. the part of the brain that's involved in that that's, needs to be changed following trauma mm -hmm. is in a, lower in the brain and it's a harder part of the brain to change. And mm -hmm. so the idea that once a week you can go and mm -hmm. talk to somebody and have yeah. that change it's 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 a it's hopeful it's over optimistic and so that's why the people in your life that you're connected to are the ones that will make the difference in your healing process that is so uh, again so important to emphasize and um to give hope to people but also to make them aware that it's not one thing that can do magic and can make magic uh and right. that that it's right. and that maybe it's um could it be also something that different individual might need in different doses? Like absolutely, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and and again, back to our, what we said earlier that everybody's everybody, uh, many people respond very well to traditional mm -hmm. therapy. Mm -hmm. But if you look at them carefully, what you realize is they have other areas of their life where what they're learning in therapy are being repeated. They have connectedness. Yeah. Um, very few people who are completely isolated are going to do uh, very well with just therapy. They need mm. other people in their lives. Mm. So then is this all a controversial thing to say that um, for m many, the experiences while stressful will not be traumatic because there is a lot of people who think they're traumatized, but then right. is everybody traumatized or, and I don't want to, of course, diminish anybody's experience no. but how can we no. then yeah like no i i 
let's use the let's use this pandemic right as an example there are some people who believe that everybody this is a this is a global shared trauma mm-hmm. and i i don't believe everybody has been traumatized by the pandemic mm-hmm. there are people like me with privilege i mean i i'll admit it i mean i've got a nice place to live and i can work from home mm-hmm. and i've been inconvenienced by the pandemic mm-hmm. but i haven't been traumatized by the pandemic people that I work with, there are some that have been traumatized. Family members have died. They've lost their job. There's uncertainty about, you know, the future that qualifies as a trauma. So Mm -hmm. I think it's important, again, back to the issue about language that we're kind of, that we use this language in a a little bit more um, precise way. And I think we can, you know, it's, um, it's one of those things where, like any conversation, you know, I don't, I, I, if people want to say they're traumatized, I don't ever say, no, you're not. I, I, I just want to listen, just tell me. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I might disagree. And, and if they're interested in my opinion, I, I may share it. And if they're not, I just let them keep talking, you know, so. But it does take a little bit of humility, I believe, uh, to, to be able to want to learn and acknowledge again not just one's privilege but the plethora of different hardships that that individual over there has and to understand that uh, while you acknowledge what has happened to you and I don't know it's always difficult because you don't want to be a bad person it's a difficult balance and that's why I think um, having somebody with authority about science also is important in these conversations uh, yeah. so that we can learn. Um, I think that, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that um, it's interesting. I, I, you, you'll see this happen when there's a, a death of a loved one, for example, that sometimes people like to measure, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. my pain's mm-hmm. bigger than your pain yeah. or I love them. And it, I, I think the dilemma is that you don't ever really necessarily know. And so I just try to listen, you know, I mean, if this was so overwhelming for you, and you're talking about it that way, tell me more about it. I mean, Mm. and then as they talk about it, a lot of times, they, the individual themselves will start to reflect on, well, maybe it's not so bad, you know, I guess there was a good thing, you know, I did get closer to my dad, he just drives me crazy, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And, um, and then, I, I, I do think, though, that it's I, I think it's good to be precise about the language. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, again, if you think about the regulate, relate, reason mm-hmm. thing, um, I, when, when people are talking about how they have been traumatized or feel traumatized, usually they're not regulated. Mm-hmm. And so I, in these conversations, it, it, if you can listen and you can help them get regulated then you may be able to say you know i'm not sure everybody is having the same experience in this pandemic or whatever it is or that you know you know sometimes people don't recognize how lucky you are to have grown up in a safe neighborhood in in the united states and uh you know when i was you know i'm sure that i don't know anything about you Mm riata but i would suspect that growing up in bosnia you saw you know was not the same as growing up in north dakota well like every Balkan story, mine is a long one. Uh, I, I, I absolutely uh, 
always because of that humility and humbleness. And that's a completely different conversation about how we maybe as individuals minimize our experience because we are so surrounded by people who have experienced so much. So I think that humility yeah. is also very important uh, in terms of also reminders because holidays are coming in the United States. People will get together and hopefully they will be vaccinated if you ask me. But uh, that that humility it, when we talk to each other and you did remind me just now in your answer about as much as we think we don't have biases, how we might have biases and how we need to regulate them or, well, I guess maybe try to be aware of potential biases that we might have. Um, yeah. and not judging a book by its cover. And I, I, I want to just get this conversation towards the end because I want to ask you so much more, but I, I am aware of, of your time as well. Yeah. There's, there's, there were three more questions. I'll cut to one yeah. and then uh, there's okay. the end. Uh, first, tell me how optimistic are you uh, about what you have been observing in terms of the acknowledgement of this pervasiveness of trauma? And because you work with a lot of people through your neurosequential model, uh, uh, about where is this taking us in the future? You know, I'm actually, I'm, I tend to be a pretty optimistic person um, mm -hmm. in general. I, I, I sort of think of it as realistic mm -hmm. um, because I have had real life experiences seeing systemic uh, and public awareness change in a couple of big areas mm -hmm. around early childhood and the importance of brain development. I, you know, 20 years ago, I was part of a big public engagement campaign. People thought I was nuts. And then it became, you know, like everybody, it became, you know, uh, mainstream knowledge. Same thing with PTSD, you know, trauma mm -hmm. and children. When I started studying it, nobody, you know, I, I remember being kind of made fun of by my colleagues at in academic wow. forum mm -hmm. because I was talking about this and they're like, well, that, there's no yeah. such thing. And, but now it's, it's, you know, there's more research, there's more mm -hmm. credibility, there's mm -hmm. more awareness. And so I'm optimistic. Um, but I'm also realistic. You know, I, here's what I know is that power doesn't relinquish power. Mm -hmm. And so there are a number of structures and belief systems that will take some time to dismantle. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I think that that process is underway. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I am hopeful. You know, for me, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm moving my interests more in the direction of what you brought up earlier mm -hmm. about what are the historical, systemic, political implications of these mm -hmm. concepts. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, you know, we do talk about therapy and I, we have a lot of therapeutic programs, but I really think that the most important part of this is recognizing how this is at play in all of our higher order human interactions. You know, uh, political negotiations, you know, whether governments decide to divide or not, you know, th these things are influenced by history. Mm -hmm. And part of that history has been related to attachment problems and trauma and and what role is retribution and revenge play in decision making and when you look through history you realize wow trauma has played a huge role in world history i mean the whole world war one was basically a family fight uh, about feeling minimized and not and not included and so you know kaiser wilhelm was like I'm going to show you. Mm -hmm. And 
it's it's crazy. I mean, you know, when and you start to look at some of this stuff. And the assassination happened in Sarajevo in 1914. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, uh, but uh, yes, and, and that is also because I agree with you why I put the title to this podcast, Dignified Resilience, because I think that in connecting those two very powerful concepts like dignity and resilience, we get to talk about a plethora of topics because what is resilience in a particular context for a country, for a individual, um, also boils down for me, acknowledging the dignity that each human deserves and wants to live with. So that said, I hope that, um, you know, I look forward to following your work. I'm really uh, thankful Thank for the you. time that you uh, and the efforts uh, and all the insights that you shared with our listeners and viewers. Is there anything that you would like to uh, tell them at the end before I say goodbye to them as well? Just be uh, be hopeful and 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 all the change that we're hoping to help create it will all come because people like you um, spend time with other people listening mm -hmm. and being respectful and learning and keeping an open mind. And um, I, I think if we could only spend a little bit more time listening to each other in a respectful way, I think that the world would be a lot better. Yeah. So let me end with one quote. Of course. That's related to that. Abraham Lincoln is an American president, very wise man. Once said, <clears throat> he said, about somebody that was in politics he said i don't like that man and then he said i must get to know him mm. which was really this recognition that if i spent some time with him got to know him i would like him better mm. or at least you know I'd, i would understand why he's why he's a jerk um and i think that that's an important thing that that when people spend time with each other and uh are a little bit open-minded that it's so much easier to connect in positive ways. On that note, um, thank you again. And I hope that everybody who listened to us uh, will share this conversation, get uh, Dr. Perry's book, follow his work, uh, hold tight to those you love. And um, I look forward to seeing you uh, again for a different conversation soon. Love it.